Father, we uh, give you praise and thanks for your goodness and grace and mercy to us. We thank you that you have not left us wondering what life is about, what reality is, but you've given us your word to guide us and direct us, to lead us back to yourself. And so today as we continue to look through Luke and the gospel, the good news that Jesus has brought for us, we pray that you'll give us wisdom, insight to not only understand the things that you've freely given to us, but to enable us to do the things that you have taught us to do. And so we uh, ask for this and ask for these blessings for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're going to pick up in Luke 9, 51. We, we, we barely got into this last week. In fact, if you look uh, in your notes on page 22, this begins the third uh, big section uh, the third big section of my outline of Luke, very top of page 22, Jesus teaches the way on the way to Jerusalem. And this goes from uh, 951 all the way through chapter 8, uh, 1834. So it takes us up to Jesus coming to Jerusalem. And then uh, the last section of the, the gospel will be him in Jerusalem teaching his last little bit, being betrayed, arrested, crucified, resurrected, and ascending back into heaven. So that, that last little section is kind of the critical turning point in uh, both Luke and Acts. It's the, the, those are the events that tie everything together, and that's what we're moving towards. But this section that we're in, and we're going to get into in depth today, uh, from 951 all the way through 1834, this is where Jesus does his most concentrated teaching on what it means to follow him so you know there's a lot of literal applications a lot of things happening that as his disciples are following him to Jerusalem uh, on the way he's teaching them about his way of discipleship as they're going and and what it's going to mean and what it's going to cost them and so forth so all of the all of the teaching that we have from this point forward is um, really amping up what we've already looked at earlier before this he was teaching the crowds you know we looked at the sermon on the plain and he was teaching you know very generally love your enemies right do good to those who hate you uh right pray for those who persecute you all that kind of stuff now as we go forward he's going to take all those things that he had been preaching more generally and he's going to put it in the terms of okay if you're gonna if you want to do the things that i've taught so far and you want to be my follower this is what's going to need to happen. And so uh, things, things really uh, start to scale up from this point forward. So verse 51, let, let's just start right there. And today we're going we're gonna to just look at some major points, uh, do a little summary. I'm not going to read everything that we're going to go through here because this is getting into some familiar territory. But uh, it's, it starts off in a really interesting place. Uh, Luke 9, 51, uh, the turning point. It says, now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, you see that? There's, there's the key thing, that he would be taken up. And Luke leaves that kind of ambiguous at this point. What does that mean, taken up? And of course, we know what it means. Uh, but here, this is looking forward to his death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, so when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he... Um, turned in that direction, and he was intent. That, that was his main goal, is to go back to, down into Jerusalem. 
Now, verse 52, so he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> huh, I, don't, I don't think they've listened to what he said so far, right? Uh, that doesn't sound like loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you, right? Uh, verse 55, all it says is this, and he turned, Jesus turned and rebuked them. Uh, right, so uh, in fact, in, there's, there's some other... Um, some other places where what Jesus puts in here is a little bit longer, but this, this is probably the most accurate reading of it. One of my Greek profs said that uh, Luke kept it that simple because what Jesus said was some pretty choice words to the disciples at that point, <laughs> which I like that. I like that idea. Um, verse 56, and so it says, so they went on to another village. Now, uh, clearly, you know, this, this is almost comedic what's happening here. The disciples, they don't get what's happening yet, you know. Uh, as we read earlier, if you fact, it's probably on the same page. Uh, if you look back over to, to 943 through 45, uh, Jesus has already told them that they're headed to Jerusalem where he's going to be rejected. Uh, he's going to be killed and he's going to be raised on the third day. And then he repeats it again uh, right in the middle of 943 says, uh, now while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is the, the point, 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So the disciples don't get it yet, right? And, and in fact, y'all know where we're headed. They're not really going to get it until the first chapters of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to open their minds to understand everything that's going on and understand their mission and the significance of what Jesus had taught them. Uh, you know, it, it really, it's really wild when you think about it. And as I think about it, this is almost the way life works, that you don't really understand a lot of times the significance of things as they're going on. It's later that the meaning comes and you think, oh, I wish I'd have paid more attention. You know, I wish I'd, I wish I'd written stuff down and remembered it. You know, my, my oldest daughter is 25 years old, you know, and I remember the week she was born thinking, oh, man, we're going to have this kid for like 20 years. This is going to be a long haul, <laughs> you know, and that 25 years seems like it was yesterday, you know. Uh, and, you, and you don't realize the significance of it until afterwards. And it's even more so with the disciples. They don't really fully comprehend everything that Jesus is doing here. And again, they, they, they still have it in their mind, I think, that Jesus is going to ultimately bring in the kingdom through power, maybe even through force. Right At some point, we're going to get past all this turn the cheek and love the enemy and then he's really going to bring the kingdom in. So they're probably thinking in those terms. But Jesus rebukes them, and they go on to another village. Uh, also, this is, introduces the Samaritans uh, in a significant way. Jesus is going uh, from Galilee in the north. In fact, let, let's look. You have a map that I gave you last year. Uh, just to orient, y'all probably would know what we're talking about. But I've given, given you a map at the top. It just says a map of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the little supplemental things. Um, 
if, if you have it. Uh, and Jesus has been ministering up here in the north in Galilee, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles, as it's called. Nazareth, Cana, uh, Capernaum, uh, up at the top of the Sea of Galilee. So up here in the north of the land. And now uh, he's turned and he's going to go south down to Jerusalem to finish out his ministry. And the really interesting thing is, uh, and we see this in the other Gospels, is that Jesus just goes straight through Samaria. Right? And there's some really famous episodes. The woman at the well in John, she's in Samaria. Most Jews going from north to south or south to north, they would not go straight through Samaria. They would come out and go around the other side, many times going up the other side of the Jordan River to bypass Samaria. And the reason is, y'all probably remember your history, uh, Samaria is called Samaria because when the uh, kingdom of Israel split in two at the death of um, Solomon, if you remember this, and his sons split the kingdom in two, into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom still retained the name Israel, but its capital, because Jerusalem was in the south, it moved its capital to Samaria, the town of Samaria. And almost immediately they got into all kind of paganism and idolatry and so forth and so on. Uh, They also, uh, the Samaritans were Jewish who interbred with the Canaanites of the land, with the people left over in the land, that Moses, through the law and the Lord speaking through Moses, had specifically told him, you can't intermarry with these people because primarily because they'll lead you into idolatry. They'll, they'll turn you away from me and turn you to, the heart, to, to the, your hearts to their gods. So the Samaritans, by the time we get to the time of Jesus, they were, uh, you know, they, were, they were of mixed lineage and the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't want anything to do with one another. And that's what happens here. As the messengers go through Samaria to prepare the way for Jesus, the Samaritans find out Jesus is a Jew who's making his way down to Jerusalem. They don't want anything to do with that, and that's why they hate him. Right? So, so uh, we, we set up this extreme division that's taking place. And it's also going to be, uh, uh, that is significant. I think Luke includes that episode because here in just a minute, in Luke 10, Jesus is going to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably one of his most famous parables, right? And boy, you talk about just flipping everybody's expectations. We'll, we'll probably get over that today. In fact, I hope we get over it. We really need to get over there today. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, so, so it introduces the Samaritans. And again, like Luke's been doing in his very sophisticated writing, he will, he will in- introduce a little idea and then he'll add some stuff and then he'll come back around to it and he'll just kind of weave these ideas together. But he introduces the Samaritans at this point uh, to show that they're opposed to Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. And instead of uh, calling fire down from heaven... Uh, Jesus says, no, 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 we're, we're going to move. We'll just go on through to another village and whatnot. So uh, just kind of keep that in mind. It's important. Then, verse 57 through 62, uh, you, you really see how the, the episodes begin to highlight this issue of what it means to follow Jesus. And you, you have three episodes very quickly put together here, uh, three exchanges that Jesus has with, with people. Verse 57, it says, Now as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Verse 58, but Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. All right, so this is a warning. If you're going to follow me, you're not going to have a home, right? We're going to be out, we're moving, we're moving along. And so you need to be aware of that. Verse 59, to another, he said, Jesus said, um, and notice it's really interesting, we, we don't get the response in that first one of whether the guy followed him or not, right? It, we're, that's kind of left it open-ended. Verse 59, we get a more uh, sure answer here. To another, Jesus said, specifically, follow me. But he said, the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Right? Hmm, that's a really interesting answer. Um, what, what, what Jesus is saying here is that uh, nobody takes precedence over me. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to follow me. You can't do other things first. And boy, man, the scholars try to turn this into everything else than what it is, you know, try to lessen what Jesus is saying here. But the, the point is significant, and we see it amplified as we go forward. Uh, if you're going to follow Jesus... Nobody can have a priority above him. Neither mother nor father, children. Jesus has to come absolutely preeminently first. Right? That, that's a hard deal. <laughs> it's, it's a hard saying, but there it is. And Jesus doesn't give an excuse for it. Um, now, uh, notice also what he says in verse 60. We're going to start to emphasize this as we go forward. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. See that? Go proclaim the kingdom of God. We're, we're going to start to see the kingdom really emphasized in these episodes that are, are coming up here. And I'm going to have a handout next week about that, about the kingdom in Luke and Acts, because that is one of the really important themes uh, that develops through the, the, the two books here. Then 61, you get the final episode. Uh, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So these these little episodes are very quickly meant to show us uh, three things about following Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to realize you're not going to have a place of security and home. Jesus is going to have to be your home. Because if you're going to follow him, he is going to proclaim the kingdom, right? He's moving. He's always, he is the one who has been sent by God to proclaim the kingdom. That means we can't get too comfortable in this world. This world is not our home. There's not a real home for us in this world, right? Um, Then the the second thing, right? There's no priority that we can have over Jesus. Uh, So we have to, Put him first above all things. And then, um, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Uh, Not even family can take priority over Jesus, our closest relationships, right? You got to put your hand to the plow and you got to move forward and don't look back, right? That's his his idea then. Boy, you think about what Peter and the rest are about to have to go through and where Jesus is going to send them and What's going to happen? And so all of these things kind of play out. Now, those three stories, like are those little episodes, we're going to see those repeated in one form or another as we go forward in Luke. And we're going to have examples of the disciples, you know, putting somebody above Jesus, 
looking back. All those kind of things are about to happen. So this is just a little summary of uh, issues that are going to come forward that Jesus is going to spell out and, and, and put more, uh, put more uh, emphasis on as we go forward. Also, I'll, I'll just mention this. I'm not going to turn over to it. The, the, the fact that um, the, when the disciples asked for fire, you know, come down from heaven, then these three episodes, it's really interesting that uh, some of that parallels the ministry of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. Uh, and you can go back and look in 1 Kings 19, 19, uh, the beginning of this. And, and that episode is where um, uh, Elijah is turning his ministry over to Elisha. Uh, and Elisha is out plowing in the field. Uh, Elijah comes by and puts his cloak on him and says, hey, you're going to take over. And Elisha says, well, let me go say goodbye to everybody first and finish up what I'm doing. And Elijah says, yeah, OK, you can go do that. But after you do that, you need to come and you know, take over what I'm doing. So Elijah's, you know, uh, one thing. But what Jesus here is saying is exactly the opposite. Right? If you're going to follow me, you've got to drop everything right now and let's go because I'm moving uh, we are, you know, nothing can wait, no, nothing can slow us down. And, and also that, I think that in a sense illustrates what it means uh, where it says he had set his face toward Jerusalem, right? As Jesus is moving toward the conclusion of all these things, he's not slowing down, waiting, stopping for anybody. If you're going to go with me, you got to get on board and we got to go now, right? Because time is short. I don't, I don't have a lot of time here. Uh, so, again, all that's going to be illustrated as we go forward. Also, um, we've had Elijah alluded to several times in Luke, right after Jesus introduces his ministry in Nazareth. Remember, he talks about Elijah, what Elijah and Elisha did. Uh, Elijah also called fire down from heaven on the prophets of Baal, if you remember that. Uh, so it, it seems like Luke um, has a lot of the story of Elijah and Elisha in the background of uh, the way he's writing and the way he's putting these things together. And uh, we also saw it um, last week when Jesus was asking the disciples, who do the crowd say I, say I am? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or one of the prophets from old. Um, and this is, this is probably because, and we'll see this a little bit later, that there was within Jewish tradition um, the development of that last prophecy in Malachi where the Lord says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, I will send Elijah to you. And of course, we know from our perspective that John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. But Jesus also says, John the Baptist, yeah, he, he was the fulfillment of that, but he is not the complete fulfillment of it. He was Elijah, but Elijah is also coming, right? So, you know, there was this expectation that Elijah would, would show up. And I think what Luke is, is doing here is to show that Jesus' ministry mirrors a lot of Elijah's ministry, but that Jesus is greater than, than Elijah, right? He is not the Elijah that was expected. What he, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who far supersedes what Elijah was doing. And we'll see some of those themes develop out too as we, as we go forward and we'll pay attention to them when we get there anybody have any questions or comments on that section there before we move on all right uh chapter 10 verse 1 after this the lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go um Earlier, he had sent out, Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and healing. Uh, back at the beginning of chapter 9, 
he sent out the 12. Let me see if I'm telling you that. Yeah, in 9-1, he had sent out the 12 and gave them power and authority to, uh, over the demons and to cure diseases and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now he sends out these 72, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So these 72 are going to go out and prepare the way for Jesus, just like John the Baptist had done in a, in a certain sense. Uh, th- there is a, a textual variation there. Some manuscripts uh, have 17. He appointed 17 others and sent them on ahead. Uh, and scholars debate whether it's 17 or 22. Uh, and all of them miss the obvious question, how do you send out 17 people two by two? <laughs> Mm, yeah, some of the new math, yeah. Uh, so I think 72 is fairly accurate. Right? It makes a little bit of sense. Uh, <laughs> right? So, and, and again, you know, Jesus is going to go into a lot of places as he goes forward. So it makes sense. And if he's sending them out two by two, right, you'd have, uh, you know, the, the 30-ish uh, groups that are going forward in that. And so they are going into these cities preparing the way for him. So it makes sense that as his ministry has grown and amplified, that he would have that, that number going through. One, uh, a, a couple of people have made points out of this, and, and Luke, Luke does not indicate that this is what he's going for here. But in, in the table of nations, uh, in Genesis 10, I think it is, let me tell you, yeah, uh, in Genesis 10, there are 72 nations listed there. At that time, of, and so it wouldn't surprise me that, that, you know, Jesus or Luke may have had that number in his head because these are the ones who are going to prepare the way for the gospel ultimately to go to all the nations, all the families of the earth. Now, again, Luke is not making that point out of it, but I do find that fascinating. That's, that's, that, that's interesting for sure. Uh, verse 2, so he, he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, uh, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Uh, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, Paul is going to say almost that same thing to the elders at Ephesus in uh, Acts 19 when we get over there. Um, To be a follower of Jesus and to go and proclaim his name is always to go into enemy territory. Right? Always. Always. Lambs among the wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Uh, Whenever you enter, uh, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. But whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. And say to them, now here's the important statement, verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Or has come upon you, Maybe a way to translate that. The kingdom of God has come near you. But, whatever, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. That the kingdom of God has come near. There's the critical statement. The kingdom of God has come near. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
And that day he's talking about is uh, the day of judgment. We'll see that in just a second. Now, uh, Jesus says a lot there, but, but let me just say the, the main point is that as these 72 are going forth, they are representing Jesus and the kingdom. That the kingdom is being offered to Israel, right? The king is in our midst, and the kingdom has come near. He's come upon you. And so it's going to be displayed both in the, in the teaching that's going to be going forward and also the healing, right? Because as we go through, Jesus is still going to be preaching and healing, preaching and healing. So here, the, the major issue is that all of these things that are happening uh, are the evidence that the kingdom has drawn near. And we're going to see that develop as, as we go forward into the next several chapters. There, in, in all, all the stipulations that Jesus gives, the, the main thing there that he's saying is, is they're not to do anything to, what's the right word, to make money from the ministry, right? This that they're doing, they're not going out to coerce people, right? But they're just to take what's given to them, eat, eat what is put in front of you, right? And then the idea of the peace on the house, you know, they're to bless the, the house as they go into it. And if the people receive them, then that peace rests on the house. Again, peace, one of the, one of the kind of major threads that goes through Luke uh, it began with the angels when the announcement was made to the shepherds, right? And the great chorus appeared in the angelic realm and glory to God in highest and peace on those with whom his favor rests, right? Uh, later, as we get toward the end of Jesus' uh, Jerusalem, uh, ministry in and toward Jerusalem, Jesus is going to say to them in, in a rebuking way, you have not known the way of peace, Right in a sense, everything that Jesus is doing here is 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 bringing peace, and of course this uh, this peace that he's talking about is built on the idea that flows out of the Old Testament with with the word shalom, uh, the Hebrew word for peace. And if you go and look at the way that term is used in the prophets and the writings in the Old Testament, peace is not just uh, the absence of strife and the absence of warfare. But uh, peace is blessing, so that when something is in a state of peace, everything works the way it ought to, right? Uh, we work the way we ought to. Uh, the ground works the way it ought to, right? The, uh, the fruit trees produce fruit. Uh, everything, it's, it's, it's a time of blessing, right? So it's not just the absence of strife, but it's the presence of God's welfare where life flourishes to its full potential, Right, And so as these disciples are going out and they're proclaiming, uh, the way I would say it is, this is what they're doing. They're giving them a little taste of the kingdom. And the way they're doing it is, they're proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And as the Messiah comes, what, he's, what, what is he doing? Well, he is showing his authority, as we've already seen, over the realm of nature. He stills the seas and the storms, right? So that nature does what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be opposed to us. Right? And putting, putting us at threat. He has authority over the demonic realm. And what place does the, the demonic realm have in the kingdom? Nothing. So they're being cast out and sent away. Right? And, the, and even as it's happening, some of the demons have already pleaded with Jesus. Lord, Jesus, don't send us to the abyss before the time. They know where they're going. Right? And it ain't good. And it's not going to be in the kingdom. So Jesus gives them a taste of that. Uh, is disease and death going to be part of the kingdom? Will there be people who are blind and leprous and lame and mute and dealing with all kinds of sicknesses? No. 
Jesus gives them a little taste of that by healing them of their infirmities and so forth. So the, these people, um, they, they are living in, and we'll see this amplify again as we go, they are living in a unique time when Jesus is physically in their midst, literally giving them a taste of the kingdom. And that's why Jesus at the end is going to say, this generation, because you have rejected me, Y'all have done sins worse than Sodom and Gomorrah did, right? The worst towns you can possibly think of uh, in the context. And so uh, here, everything in, this, in, in the, the preaching of the 72 is meant to give them an experience of the kingdom. But if they reject him, uh, Jesus says, hey, y'all shake the dust off your feet and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. It'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Then verse 13, notice he he, uh, he, he keeps going with that idea of judgment. He says, Woe to you, Chorus, and woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you... Uh, there's the key thing. Uh, underline The mighty works. The mighty works. In uh, John, especially, Jesus is talking about believing in him. And he says, you know, if nobody... If you don't believe what I'm saying to you, you should believe in me for the sake of the works I do, if nothing else. Just look at what I'm doing. Nobody else is doing the kind of thing I'm doing. And so his works give evidence that he is who he claims to be. So these mighty works uh, really point to the reality of who Jesus is. He says, if these works have been done in Tyre and Sidon, those, of course, are two enemies, uh, uh, cities that were uh, hostile to Israel in the Old Testament, even right up until the time of of the New Testament. He said, if these things had been done there, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, a sign of contrition and remorse, the sackcloth and ashes. 14, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. And here, so here this is talking about as the cities and as the people within the cities reject Jesus, they are rejecting God's purposes for them. And on the day of judgment, it's going to be rough. Um, 16, Here's the point. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's that's the critical connection there, right? Jesus has been sent by the Father. So to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. To reject Father God, the Lord God over all things, right? To reject Jesus is to reject him. To reject the one who's been sent by Jesus is to reject Jesus, right? So these 72 and these other disciples that are going to go out, uh, along with the 12, they represent Jesus who ultimately represents the one true God. So their rejection is a rejection of the one true God. And that's going to be significant as we go forward as well. Now, uh, verse 17, you, you, you get the response. It says, the 72 returned with joy. There's another critical word. Circle that word joy there. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us and in your name. There's another critical statement. It's, it's not that the demons are subject to us, period. Right? It's the demons are subject to us in your name. One of my favorite episodes is in, uh, is in the book of Acts where you have uh, seven uh, Jewish exorcists who have been casting out demons and they've seen the other disciples uh, casting out demons in Jesus' name and so they try to go in and do the same. 
uh, they're in the house, and as they try to do it, demons come out and they say, wait, 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 wait a minute. We know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? And, right? And they, they beat the guys up and then, then leave. Uh, and it's, it's funny because they, they have to leave because these exorcists have just used the name of Jesus. That's all they've done. So the authority of Jesus' name is enough to kick them out, but it's not enough uh, to keep the Jewish exorcists from getting a booty kicking on that thing. Uh, really, really interesting. So, so that there, they are subject to us in your name. Um, oh, I can think of all, I, 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 I could get sidetracked on that so easy. I'm going to move on. Uh, we're going to see that phrase several more times in your name, in his name. So just keep that in mind. Verse 18. So Jesus said to them, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's the important thing, right? Not that they're, not that they're part of this incredible things that are happening. That, that is significant. But that their names are actually written in heaven. Uh, also, we're, we're going to see the the the, uh, the idea develop later. The authority over the serpents and the scorpions. That that happens on a couple of occasions uh, at the end, toward the end of Paul's life. If you remember when he shipwrecked, they're making a fire and a viper comes out and bites him, and all the people are like, "Oh boy, well that that's the end of Paul." Paul's like, "Don't worry about it." He just shakes it off and says, "This thing has no power over me whatsoever." Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see some more of that as we go forward. Uh, the Lord often, and, and y'all, let, let, me just, let me just say, that is not an absolute promise for everybody right there. I mean, history just bears that out, right? Uh, especially where Jesus says, nothing shall hurt you. This, this was something that was given to these 72 and the 12 in the early days to confirm uh, Jesus' ministry, because I'm going to suggest something to you. There have been Christians that have died from snake bites, right? A, a lot, right? A whole lot. So, so this is something that Jesus was doing early on to confirm his message in some specific ways. Also, uh, there where he says, nothing shall hurt you, right? I mean, clearly, we know where this story is going. There are going to be things that hurt the disciples in the days to come. In fact, all, all 12, as far as we know, besides John... John is the only one out of, out of the 12 that, that does not die uh, through persecution, right? Who is not put to death uh, in their persecution. So, so there Jesus is talking about this in the specific context of sending these uh, men out to be his representatives and to oversee uh, his pro- uh, proclamation of the, of the gospel, of the good news of the kingdom and so forth. And again, the main point is, is that uh, their names are written in heaven, that they're part of the heavenly group. Uh, that's being collected here uh, for the sake of the kingdom. Then verse 21, this is, this is tied right together. Uh, he says, Now in that same hour he, he, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So this is, um, this is one of those um, threads that shows up in all of the Gospels. And, it, and it's simply this, 
you can't know the one true God apart from Jesus. Right? That's, that's the only way you can come to know the one true God. Uh, in John 14, one of Jesus' most famous statements that everybody knows, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? I was, I was with, uh, I was talking to somebody years ago, and they were kind of uh, in that teaching of, well, you know, don't, don't all paths, don't all religions kind of lead us back to the one true God, you know? And I said, well, uh, yeah, they do all point us back in, in kind of a similar direction, but there right up where all those paths come together, where that gate is, there is Jesus. And if you don't find him at the end of the road of that religion, then that thing is leading you astray somewhere else. Right, and they just kind of were baffled at that. Well, do you mean? Wait a minute. That sounds really exclusive. That sounds like you're saying Christianity and Jesus is the only way. I'm like, you got it, you got it. And I'm not saying that. Jesus Himself said it, right? So, if you got a problem with it, you're going to need to take it up with Jesus. You know that? I mean, <laughs> that's not my thing. Uh, so here, Jesus is very specific about it. Also, again, this this idea that's introduced where he says that, that the Father has hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and he's revealed them to little children. Uh, at this time in the first century, it, it, it seems that, uh, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, believed that, that salvation, you know, complete salvation, was reserved for those who were wise enough and had the maturity enough to comprehend what God was doing, right? So, so, so salvation comes to the why, and the Pharisees especially. They were trying to make everybody wise in the knowledge of Torah so that the kingdom would come. And here Jesus just completely turns that over on its head. Uh, right? The Father hasn't revealed these things to the wise and to those who are the book smart. Instead, he's revealed them to little children. And the idea is the little, little children are neither wise nor do they have understanding. And, and then he says this, for this is your gracious will. This is, this is what you have desired to have happen, right? Your grace, your mercy, um, which is one of the themes that comes up uh, that, well, that we've already seen in the Sermon on the Plain back in chapter 6. Jesus, uh, listen to this, and I'll just, uh, I'll just repeat this a little bit. This is in Luke six thirty-five and 36. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. He says, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Father God is merciful. Uh, And in His grace, He reveals the hidden things of the kingdom to children but he shuts it off to the wise and to those who seemingly have understanding, right? And we're going we're to see that conflict continue uh, as the scribes and the Pharisees continually don't get it and reject Jesus and as the, the simple people uh, come to him and understand what's going on. Um, <clears throat> then verse 23, 24, he says, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, right? So he's, he's not speaking to the crowds here. He's talking to the disciples. Blessed are the, are, are, are the eyes that see what you see, 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear it and to hear and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So these disciples, they're getting to see things that really everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to in a sense, right? The fulfillment of the promises. And so it's a great blessing to be there and to see the things that are taking place. Verse 25. Now here I'm going to I'm going to summarize some of this and I want to tie this together. Because uh, Luke puts together these themes that he's been developing for us. Verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And right there, he's already made his first mistake, right? <laughs> he's going to get up and put Jesus to the test. All right, let's, let's see how this goes. Uh, uh, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the, the, the Jews of this time, again, they're expecting the kingdom to come. And they believe that when the kingdom comes, it's going to usher in an eternal age of peace, shalom, and blessing, and all the rest. So in their mind, to have eternal life is to be worthy to be in that kingdom when it comes, right? That's the idea that he's saying here. So verse 26, Jesus said to him, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this is something that's really significant. Because at this time, they had already gotten in the, in the tradition of when they were doing, uh, you know, uh, theological debates. And that's what this, this lawyer, right, this is a scribe. This is a guy who's been trained to copy the scriptures without error, right, so that it'll be preserved. So this guy's an expert. He spends all day copying the Torah and copying the scriptures, right? So he's more learned. And by the way, he's the wise and the understanding. <laughs> Jesus has just said, right? Uh, Thank you, Father, that you haven't revealed it to them. Uh, So here he's raising the question, and Jesus says to him, uh, not, well, what do the other rabbis say about it? Right? Because that's what they would do at this time. When they got into a theological discussion, often they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says that. But Jesus wants to know, what do you think about it? Right? You've been, you've written down that Torah. I know you've copied the books of Moses, so you tell me what you think about it. And so this is what he says. Verse 27, he answered, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, here uh, he is uh, bringing together two, uh, two major scriptures there. That's, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Right here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with, all, with everything that you are. That's, that's the point there. With, with your whole being, heart, soul, strength, and with your mind, that, that's the whole person. And then the second quote is from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which are the two great commandments. In fact, in other places, Jesus specifically labels these as the two great commandments. And in fact, in Matthew, when he's explaining this, He says, right, he gives those two commandments. He says, the first one is the greatest, love the Lord your God. And there's a second that's its equal, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says something incredible. He says, on this hangs all the law and the prophets. That is the foundation that everything else is built from. And and let me just suggest this. If, If Adam and Eve had been able to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as their self we would not have been in all the mess that we're in the middle of. That's, in a sense, what Jesus is laying out there. That the whole Old Testament is just an explanation of those two commands. 
of both what they mean and how we fail to do those things. Right? Everything hangs on those. So we already know that he's, this guy's given the right answer. And Jesus uh, tells him, verse 28, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now look at what Jesus says. Do this and you will live. Not, yeah, write a commentary on this. Right? Not understand this, but you need to do it. You've got to practice it. And again, this is one of Jesus' themes. It's not enough just to hear the Word of God. You've got to do it. You've got to practice it. And we, again, he's already introduced that earlier. Um, and he will continue to develop it as we go along. Verse 29, and here you go. Now, now he should have just gone home. He got to open his stupid mouth and throw something else up in there. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself... <laughs> Uh, to show that he knows more than Jesus, right? Now, that, that's what that means. Here. Yeah, I'm about, to, I'm, I'm, I'm about to show him something right here, right? He said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor, right? And the Pharisees already had a long list of people that you should consider to be your neighbor. They were all Jewish. None of them were Samaritans. <laughs> None of them were Gentiles. Nobody else. It was this list of these are the people that are your neighbors and these are the ones that you should favor, right? So Jesus tells the parable. Y'all all all know the parable. Uh, One of the most famous parables. I'm I'm not going to read through the whole thing here, but uh, you remember the story. A man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That that path is very treacherous. It's like a 17-mile hike that goes from an elevation of 2,600 feet down to a lower depth of 800 feet below sea level. It's, it's, it's a very treacherous path, so everybody would have known this road. And so as he's making the path, robbers come, they strip him, they beat him, uh, they, they leave him half dead. And as he's laying half dead on the side of the road, a priest <laughs> priest comes by and he sees him and he passes by on the other side. He doesn't even want to get close to that guy. And so the priest is kind of the upper crust of Jewish culture, right? Priest from the temple. Then after that, a Levite. A Levite, too, is from the upper crust. They, a Levite would have served the priesthood and uh, done things in the daily functioning of the temple, right? So in, in, in the Pharisee's mind, uh, these would be some of the most religious people you could possibly think of, right? Um, so he comes by. He, too, saw him, but he passed by on the other side. And then a Samaritan, this no good, dirty, half-breed Samaritan that we all hate, he comes by, and what does he do? He comes by, he saw him, and he has compassion on him. Verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Uh, Those are medicinal remedies. You would clean out the wound with wine. Uh, Wine was used as an anesthetic and, and to kill bacteria, although they wouldn't think of it in those terms, and then the oil as well, uh, and then he bound him up. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Uh, so here, this Samaritan, he goes and he pays two days wages, enough for this guy to stay at the inn for three or four weeks probably, Right? And says, take care of him, and when I come back, if there's any excess, then I'll pay for that as well, right? <laughs> I, I'm sure the scribe is thinking, oh man, I don't, I don't like where this is headed, right? Uh, 
Verse 36, here's, here's the critical question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is a no-win situation, right? Because, number one, this Pharisee is going to have to admit, ah, I didn't see that coming. And then secondly, he's going to have to admit that the Samaritan has done what the Jews would not. Right? And so this is what he says. (laughs) Verse 37, he responded, the one who showed him, look at the word, mercy. Mercy like the Heavenly Father shows. Right? Like Jesus is going to call his disciples to show. Uh, The mercy of the Father that reveals the hidden things from the wise and the understanding and reveals them to little simple children who are not worthy of the kingdom, really. Right? That's what his mercy is. And then Jesus really gets him. Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. (laughs) You got it right, son. Now go get at it. And, and, and I love that we don't get any response from this guy because he's probably turning with his tail between his legs. Y- y'all know, I always make the jo- joke, as you read through the Gospels, notice, don't ever put yourself in a situation where you're going to ask Jesus a question, right? <laughs> don't, don't ever do that. Everybody gets in trouble that does that. And you definitely don't ever put yourself in a place where Jesus asks you a question. Because <laughs> if, if that happens, then it is over with, right? You're going to be shown up for everything. Uh, and that's even true of the disciples, right? Uh, they, they get in a lot of trouble through the things they say and whatnot. Yes? But isn't it true that at that time, you know, they believed the, what the Torah said, mm-hmm. that it, the priest and the Levites, they won't be unclean if they touch somebody like that. That's probably what they would think. Well, the, 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 only, the only living person that you could be made unclean by was a leper. The, I thought even the ones that touch a dead body or somebody else. Well, he ain't dead yet. He's just half dead. Yeah, so, so yeah, it, it would not make the priest unclean, yeah, to do it. So, uh, and, you know, Jesus is, not, Jesus is not doing anything that goes beyond what the Torah teaches. What he's really challenging is what, the way the Pharisees and the scribes have interpreted the Torah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know... It, yeah, and, and you know, uh, but, 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 but the point you're making is really critical, is that people who are religious will do everything they can to avoid, right, defiling, quote unquote, themselves. How are they defined that? Jesus runs headlong into everything that would possibly defile people, right? He has already touched a leper, which is the only living person that can make you ceremonially unclean, according to the law. And then you got to go into the seven days of purification and all that. But when Jesus touches him, Jesus has not made him pure. He purifies the leper, right? Instead of the leper infecting Jesus with his disease, Jesus infects the leper with his life. And that's why everybody's like, wow. Right? Which, which, by the way, uh, y'all, y'all, may, uh, y'all may know the name Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a Jewish believer, Messianic believer. And in his teaching, he has, a, um, he has a little study called The Three Messianic Miracles. And he talks about the fact that, that based on the, the Mishnah and the Jewish writing of the time, there's some evidence that the Pharisees had, 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 and the scribes and the rabbis had begun to teach, looking at the Old Testament, uh, miracles that only the Messiah would be able to perform. 
And so they had already set up these standards for when the Messiah comes, only the Messiah is going to be able to do this, right? And, and they had even divided it into between the messianic miracles and normal miracles. And the normal miracles were like casting out demons and healing and all this kind of stuff. But of the three, yeah, of the three that they said only the Messiah was going to be able to do, uh, one of them was to heal a, heal a Jewish leper, right, that had been made unclean by his leprosy because there had been no Jewish leper ever healed in the history of Israel. Everybody that was healed from leprosy in the Old Testament, they were all Gentiles or before the giving of the law. So as they looked at the Hebrew Scriptures, they said the Messiah is going to be the one who will bring cleansing to leprosy. That'll, nobody else has been able to do that. So this is probably something reserved for the Messiah, right? Um, the uh, the uh, second thing that they said that he was going to be able to do is that the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon that had made somebody mute. Because at that time, the Pharisees, and by the way, at the time of Jesus, you had all kind of uh, exorcists, people that were able to cast out demons, even among the Pharisees and the scribes. And we'll see that in an episode coming up here uh, next week. So they were able to cast things out, but they had this very specific ritual that they would go through. And one of the parts of the ritual was you had to, you had to communicate with the demon and you had to get the demon's name. And then when you had the name of the demon, you would have power over it and you could command the demon to come out. But if somebody can't speak, then how can the demon tell you his name, right? So only the Messiah will be able to cast out a demon out of a mute man because nobody else can get his name to know. But Messiah will do that. Let me look over, y'all, uh, look over uh, uh, we're, we're chapter 11. By the way, chapter, uh, <laughs> let's see, let me, just, let me just give you this while I'm thinking about it. Uh, chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, y'all remember, and Jesus heals him. And, and Jesus tells that man, go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses has commanded as proof to them. Uh, there, the reason Jesus sends him back is when this guy goes back and he's been healed of his leprosy and they ask him, wait a minute, where'd your leprosy go? He said, well, this guy healed me. God, Jesus, the priest would immediately think, oh, gosh, really? Could this be the one, right? So it raises the question. Then Luke eleven fourteen. then Luke eleven fourteen. 14, look forward. Now he was casting out Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. There it is. There's another one of them. This is one that the scribes and the Pharisees have said, only the Messiah is going to be able to do this. He's the one that have the power and the authority to do it. But look at their response. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus fulfills their own qualifications. The test that they have put forward. He heals a guy with leprosy. He cast out a demon from a man that's mute. And what do they say? He ain't the one. By their own stipulations. Right? There is a third one, possibly a fourth one, that, that people talk about. And that is to heal a man who was born blind. And Jesus doesn't do that in Luke, but he does do it in the Gospel of John. And if that, that, that one is critical because, again, people see it 
And they, that's where they actually ask, could he be the one? Could he be the Messiah, right? And, and, and some people believe that there might have been a fourth one, and that is to raise somebody from the dead after three days. Because, you know, somebody that's been in a tomb for three days, oh, they're dead, right? There's no, you know, it, it wasn't like, hey, Stacy died this morning, and Jesus goes and raises him in this afternoon. Well, then there's the question, well, he, I, he probably wasn't that dead, you know? <laughs> Just like the princess, the princess bride, right? He's, he was only mostly dead. Not entirely dead, but after, after three days, somebody is dead, dead, right? And so, right, so Jesus does that. Uh, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? It's after three days. And in fact, they're even warning him, oh, Lord, no, you don't want to do that because he's stinking up in there. You don't want to, right? We know he's dead. Uh, but Jesus raises him up. And the, the significant thing as we're getting into all this is we see that Jesus is causing this divide between those who are religious and those who are going to follow Jesus. And now I'm going to... Uh, yeah, this, this, this is... A, I'm, I'm, let, me, let me just end it with this. Um, well, actually, let me, let me tie it into this last little episode because it'll be good. We can pick up right in chapter 11. Let me, uh, let me say this and read this last episode. Um, it's very difficult for the religious to find Jesus. Very difficult. It was very difficult in Jesus' day, and it's very difficult in our day. Because people who, who are religious have a hard time trusting anything other than institutional religion. Right? It's one of the greatest idolatries that the devil has ever conceived of in his mind. Right? Uh, and Jesus warns people about this. Uh, when he, Jesus is talking about the judgment, he says, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we? And by the way, we find out that even unbelievers can cast out demons just by using Jesus' name. It's the power of his name that does that, right? Didn't we feed the poor? Didn't we do this, that, or the other? And Jesus is going to say, I, I don't know who you are. Right? Do the wrong things for the wrong motives. And, and, and this is one of the warnings that Jesus is going to lay out. But then you, you also have this, and this kind of illustrates the idea of distraction and how even uh, everything can be a distraction, not just religion. Verse 38, let's end with this. Y'all know this story. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Uh, we, we find out that Mary and Martha become very close to Jesus. Uh, Mary and Martha, their brother is Lazarus, who he's going to raise from the dead later. Not, not in Luke, but in the Gospel of John, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, verse 40, now here's the statement. But Martha was distracted with much serving. <laughs> and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Uh, hospitality was a big thing among the Jews in the first century. And, and often uh, the women had the responsibility of serving and making everybody feel at home, right? Putting the food out, taking care of everybody. I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of the way I grew up. You know, m- m- my grandmother, her main role was to make sure everybody was having a good time, right? Really important. We would, we, we would often go down on the weekend and, uh, you know, we would get in late, and at 10.30, my, mama, my grandmother would be like, hey, you want me to cook you a hamburger? I'm like, no, mama, it's 10.30 at night. Well, I come in here and eat some pie. How about some french fries? I'm like, mama, I'm already, I'm already, I'm already struggling with 
you know, every kind of weight problem you can imagine. You're trying to, quiet, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. But her thing was, we're here to have a party. We're here to have time. Martha's like, wait a minute. Now, why are you letting her sit over there and just listen to you teach? And I'm in here trying to make sure everything's working, right? But the key thing is, notice she was distracted. Jesus' answer is awesome. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many different things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Right? Uh, and I love the word good portion there, because that immediately thinks of a meal. Mary's chosen the good portion of the meal. Right? So, and I'm not going to take that away from her. Jesus Again, we see that Jesus, right, he is welcoming of women as his disciples. Uh, some of the rabbis would allow women to be taught by them. Others would not. There was a big division in the first century. Jesus, though, anybody that wants to come and sit at my feet and listen to me teach, they're welcome. And that's the best thing they can be doing. And what this story illustrates is that even, even the things that are necessary, they can become a distraction. Even the, the, the minor things in life, right? Much less, you know, not having a place to lay your head or bury the dead or those other three things, just making sure people are doing okay. One, one of my favorite statements uh, Eugene Peterson said in one of his books, and I don't remember which one it was. I just remember it hit me right between the eyes. He said, there is nothing that distracts us from devotion to Christ like service for Christ. Nothing distracts us from devotion to Christ like service for Christ. We're going to see that worked out in the next several chapters, right? Uh, And this is where Martha is. She's distracted by things that are important, but they're not of first level importance, right? Mary's got her focus on the right thing. Now, I'll come back and say a little bit more about that next week. All right, y'all, let me pray for us and we'll turn loose and we'll pick up right there in chapter 11 next week. Father, we, uh, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us. As, as we read uh, these narratives about the life of Jesus and what he did, what he taught, um, it's just incredible that we have all these things preserved for us for over 2,000 years. And they still speak as powerfully today as they did uh, when he was walking and teaching and doing these very things in the midst of the people. So, Father, I pray that we can hear and we can comprehend uh, what's being said here, because uh, the reality is, there, like, like, like Peter said, there is nowhere else we can go with anybody who has the words of life the way Jesus does. Uh, he is our Savior, He's our Redeemer, He's our King, and we long for the day when He returns to set all things right and to really uh, establish that kingdom and the peace that will have no end. And apart from Him, we have no hope for anything. And so we thank you for all these blessings and we thank you for the time we have here together. I pray that you'd bless our efforts together and that in everything we do, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his powerful name that we ask all this. Amen.